and obviously I'm a trans woman living in Nigeria, which is like, like it's, it's a crazy navigation. When we are going in desert, we walk for good six hours. My leg was trapped. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Lay of the Land. Last week on Lay of the Land, we heard from David Folarami, who shared part of his story on dealing with a crack cocaine addiction. Well, this week we're continuing with David's story as it's far from over. If you haven't listened to the first part of this recording, please do so before continuing with this episode. Part one ended with David in hospital after a serious accident that broke his leg. A continuous theme so far in David's story is that he couldn't respond positively to several wake-up calls. And that continues. Okay, so what was I supposed to do? I mean, if I don't know anybody, I don't have any money. So I looked for the weak link, the weakest link, and it was the nurse. So I started talking to her, and then I made her to believe everything I said. And I started sending her to Ibadan to buy me drugs. What what kind of stories were you telling her? <laughs> no, just leave that. Just leave that. No, I want to know. What kind of stories? <laughs> I, I, I just found a way to convince her that I actually did need those drugs. It was life and death kind of thing. And then she too was a naive young girl. Yeah. And then she actually thought she was helping me. You know, she lost her job. Oh. Sadly, yes. So she would go to Ibadan in the morning, buy from the bunk and bring it to me. Because I was in the private ward. So I was using there. So, eventually she got caught and then got sacked. But then, after the three months, uh, I could pull my leg. I could, I, I was now, they removed the external fixations. I still had the, the one inside. So, they put me on um, very heavy POP. And the doctor said, do not let your foot touch the ground. I'm just going to discharge you because you've been here for a while. But then, they're going to have to do some sort of follow-up for you in Abuja, wherever it is you're going to. So I said, okay. So he discharged me and I flew back to Abuja. And my mom moved my things downstairs for ease. And then, yeah, so there I was. So now I'm on crutches and then this leg is in um, the cast. And one day I'm by my room window and a taxi comes into the estate to drop somebody. And I just shout, taxi! <laughs> and then he stops and... I, I come out of my crutches and I'm like, take me to XYZ. That's the bunk. So I go back there. And then the people in the bunk are, well, they're happy. They're like, we thought you died. Where have you been? That's the longest time they had not seen me in the bunk. You know, from the time I went to Ibadan down to when I started using and yeah. the three months I spent in hospital. So they were surprised. So everybody was happy. And we had a little party that day. They gave us freebies. There was freebies for everybody. With your leg wrapped in POP and your crutches. And crutches. So... After the party was over, it was back to reality. Now you have to pay money. So I had some money in my account and I could do some transfer. So I spent everything, then sold my phone. And then two days later, I'm like this, thinking about what the hell have you done again? And then one guy comes to me and says, Oh God, this is your crutch, you see the user? <laughs> and I'm looking at him like, you devil. <laughs> you want to take my crutches off me? And I'm like, if I give you, what would you give me? Oh, he says, no. I'll give you a gram of cocaine. I say, have it. No. So I give him my crutches. So then I use the gram of cocaine. And of course, it will always finish. Now, I was hopping on my left leg. I was hopping on my left leg. And then there's no money 
to feed or to do anything. So I knew I had to leave the bunk. Now I had to hop on my left leg from a distance from like here to that. I call it Nollywood Bridge. That bridge, Nollywood always shows. <laughs> so I had to hop almost that distance. People were looking at me like, is this guy okay? But then as soon as I got there, I just fell down and passed out. So people started wondering, oh, who is this guy? People gathered. Luckily, someone who went to Governor University was passing by and saw me, knew my story about my struggles. So he said, stop it, stop it. I know this guy, just stop it. And then he calls another friend who, who he knew will have my parents' number. So they say, okay, take him to so 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 hospital, which is the family hospital. So they take me there. Then my parents meet me there. And then obviously I was dehydrated and all of that. So they tried to help me. So uh, I'm in the hospital. And then the doctor has given strict instructions to the security that nobody should come to see me and I should be let to go out. So I was there for that while. And then... Um, while we're in the hospital, they bring in somebody who they said had an overdose. And I'm wondering, how many of us are overdosing in this town? And then my uncle was now telling me, you know, trying to advise me, see, they just brought in somebody and the guy is dead. And you need yeah. to be careful. And I'm like, oh shit, somebody's dead too. And then I feel like I knew almost 90% of the people that I use in Abuja. So I'm like, what's his name? And he called the person's name. And it's somebody I know. Oh, no. He went to go and I invested too. And I'm like, no, it can't be. So I'm like, that's my, that's, my, that's my mate. That's my classmate. So my uncle says, do I want to see him? I said, yes. So now I have new crutches, of course. So I'm on my crutches and he takes me there. I pull off the sheets and it's my friend. He was in the bunk when I sold my crutches. That's just a few days ago. And he was okay. And so what happened? Dead. He had died. So that's the second person. So I was distraught. His mom came, picked him, took him to his town to bury him. And then, uh, so you see, how many wake-up calls now? Several. Okay, I, even I have lost track of all <laughs> okay, of the wake-up calls. So yeah. um, I was, I was, it was crazy. So eventually um, I was led to leave the hospital and I went back. And I went back home and I went back to the bunk. What year was this, by the way, now? This was now, no, this was 2016. Okay. I left the hospital 2016. Good. So I went back to the bunk again. So now I'm in the bunk again. And at this point in time, nobody cares anymore. My mom is like, if you want to kill yourself, kill yourself. But then most times she'll still always come back to the bunk to just say, let's go home. You know, yeah. let's go home. She had been robbed twice. Because it's not a place where a decent person will walk in and then, no, no. So uh, I'm back in the bunk. I have a new friend. His name is Junior. He, he, Junior was doing his PhD when someone introduced him to crack cocaine. And then he just lost it. You know, he threw everything away. And then he was living in the bunk. Now his father had disowned him. Uh, so we're friends because we could relate on some level. But then Junior used to steal. I still couldn't bring myself to steal from outsiders. So he would just say there's nothing to eat. And whatever the case is, if, he's get, if he gets caught, his parents will pay for it. So one day we're in the bunk. And then um, Junior says, uh, David has caught me. So I'm like the wing guy. No wonder who will look out. So I'm like, I'm, I'm tired. I can't, I, I, I just, I'm just tired. You know, my leg hurts. Yeah. Yeah, so please can I just stay today? So he says, okay, I'll go and then I'll make some money for us. And then he was like, oh, don't worry, I got you. You get to smoke. You want to crack, you smoke. So he was that kind of guy. So he leaves and then I'm actually waiting for him because he was a guy of his words. You know, there's honor among thieves. So 
he leaves and then that night he doesn't come back. The next day he doesn't come back. And on the third day, somebody comes to the bunk and says, Junior went to steal from a jewelry store in um, Abacha Road. He was caught, he was beat up and he was burnt. (gasps) And I couldn't help but think if I was with him, maybe the same thing would have happened to me. So we had a candlelight service in the bunk. That's, we're family. Yeah. yeah, we're family because we, you know, the first time I went, remember I told you I saw people looking like zombies. Yeah. Now I was like them. So I've become family with them. So uh, I, I just, we had a candlelight service and the dealers at times like this, they would be nice and they give us drugs. So next day, I'm like, okay, I want to go home. And I really do need to mourn Junior. So I go home and I'm just on my own. And I'm thinking, what sort of life is this? I lost everything, you know. And uh, somehow, I went back to the bunk. Now, let me wrap this up. In 2017, I was in the bunk. It had gotten so bad that now, I'll take money from a child to take to the bunk to use. So, I had, I had, developed full-blown dependence. It wasn't addiction anymore. I couldn't live outside the bunk. And when you go to the bunk, you'll see people who have been there since 1995, 96. They are so dependent on the substance that they can't live outside the bunk. They can't bear to live in a place that is too far. The proximity to the drugs has to be very, very close so they can get it when they need it. So I had become like that. Now, at this point in time, for me to function in the morning when I wake up, I had to use two grams of crack cocaine and the minimum of half a gram of heroin, however way I get it. So when did you start on heroin? Uh, you know, some t- it was a lot of experimenting. So just from, he- yeah, yes, from time to time? Yes, and then- eventually. Now let me tell you how crack and heroin works. They work hand in hand. Crack is a stimulant. Yeah, It stimulates the brain, the central nervous system. It makes you hyperactive. Heroin is an opioid which acts almost as a depressant, so it calms you down. Now, the problem with heroin is when heroin wears out, you start feeling pains, a lot of pains. That's why you see certain drug users crying, literally crying or holding your leg and begging you that they need their fix. They're not doing it because their body is itching them. They're doing it because they're in actual pain. So that's what it does. So the only cure, we call it curing and para. So we call that pain para. The curing is now to use crack. So when you take crack, all those pains just leave your body. So that was the cycle of how we lived in the bunk. You use crack, then you use heroin to sleep. Then when you wake up in the morning, you have pains in your body. So you use crack. You have to use crack again. So when you use that crack, you become hyperactive. Now you can go out to hustle and come back. So maybe when you come back, you use maybe half a gram of crack or one gram of heroin. But then you're too hyperactive, so you can't sleep because you're jumping about the place. So then, of course, you need to use heroin so you can't sleep. So you use heroin to sleep, but the way you wake up, you're in pain. So you need the crack. That's That's the cycle. cycle. That's the cycle. So at this point in time, I was using two grams of crack and half of heroin. So uh, one day my mom comes. She's crying. and She's... um, She's just crying and saying she's had it. She doesn't know what to do. So I'm like, okay, let's go home. I swim just boxers and maybe singlet. Excuse me. So I go with her. 
And then I'm thinking, okay, I have to commit suicide. I can't keep doing this. I can't just keep doing this. I'm causing so much pain, not just to myself, to my family, to the church, because we're very close to the church where I was born. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to commit suicide. I mean, it's a battle I can't win. I've tried. I've actually tried. And then we get back home, and then she tells the security, don't let him go out. Just the usual thing. Don't let him go out. Change the locks and all of that. So she comes in, and she asks them to give me my dinner, which was served, and she goes up to sleep. And then I take a pen and a paper, and I write a suicide note. This was in May of 2017. So I write a suicide note, and I say, look, mom, dad, I'm sorry. I'm doing this. I'm not doing it because I'm selfish. I'm doing this because I'm trying to get a way out for everybody, for myself and for you guys too. Maybe after this, you guys will rest. You know, you're going to stop hearing David did this, David did that. So I write that suicide note. And uh, I mix rat poison and bleach, put in half a bottle of Coke. And then I drink it. I think I took two gulps and I just dropped to the floor, holding my stomach. Now, the amazing thing, I don't know what to call it amazing. The thing that happened was I couldn't speak. I felt like a big ball here because at this time I was trying to call for help. And then I felt like I was just passing out. Now, my younger brother, who I didn't even know was in the country, he lives in Europe, came around. I didn't know he was around because I've been in the bunker anyway, so... He comes in and he sees me on the floor. And he's thinking, oh no, my, my brother has his back with his um, rubbish again. So he was just going to walk right Past over him. me to his room. But then he sees the suicide note. And then he reads it. And he tries to pull me up and starts hitting me. So he calls my mom. My mom comes down. My eyes are open, but everything is blurry. I started foaming already. So my mom just comes with a wrapper tied above her chest. And then they put me in the car. And they're rushing me to Federal Medical Center in Jabi, Abuja. So she's hitting me. You know, African mothers, she says, yeah. don't pass out. She's hitting me as hard as she can. I couldn't feel anything. I, I could tell somebody was touching me, but I didn't think, you know. So my brother was driving. And then um, at some point in all of this, I passed out. So, I mean, Federal Medical Center, Jabi, they are doing what they are doing to me. And then I think on the second day, I woke up. When I woke up, I, I didn't know what time was. I didn't know how long I'd been there. But then my mom was by my bedside. She was lying down. She was wearing the same wrapper she wore when she took me to the hospital. So I felt like, oh, this is just like five or ten minutes afterwards. Why did they bring me? Why did they bring me here? I want to go. But then she was praying and she was telling God, oh, God, this is the second day and he hasn't woken up. Please, if you're going to take my life, in exchange for his, and let him be normal again, then please take my life. So I'm like, oh, I've been here for two days. So I sleep off again. And then I wake up much later. And this time I have people around, my mom's friends, my brother. Uh, and then the uh, Dr. Amarachi, that's her name. She's the consultant psychiatrist doctor in the hospital at the time. She comes around and she's like, how many are these? How many are these? Say it to Z, say it backwards, just to make sure I'm okay. And I could do all of that. And then I say, I want to leave. And they say, no, you can't leave. You're on suicide watch. I'm like, no, I want to leave. So they give me a form to fill because they're like against 
medical advice. I'm yeah. insisting on leaving. So I filled the form and I signed it. So everybody's worried. But you see something, Leila, at that point in time, I knew something had happened. So I go back home. And then the first day, the second day I wake up, there's no pains in my joints. I didn't have to smoke a cigarette because I was smoking about 30 sticks of cigarettes a day at the time. I couldn't use the toilet without smoking. Not, not possible. I, I, I would wake up at intervals at night to smoke. Like, you know the way you sleep through the night? No, I couldn't. I wake up and I know I'm waking up to smoke and I smoke and I sleep back. So now I didn't have to smoke. I could use the toilet. I could eat. So I'm like, okay, I think I'm better. But then I still go to hospital. I go to Gerke Hospital. Yeah. I go to see a doctor there, Dr. Kamalafe. He's a psychologist. And I explain everything to him. Now, the way I knew him was, I went to Gerke Hospital once. And then Junior and I stole a phone there. And we got caught. But then Dr. Kamalafe spoke to me. And from the way I talked, he knew that, look, this is not this guy's life. You know? So he made sure nothing happened to us. He just took the phone back. And I was like, when you know you're ready for help, come back. So... I went back to see him and then he put me on as an outpatient for three months. And I was going for therapy and all of that. So after that, I just knew I was good. You know, I just knew I was good. I started putting weight on again. And um, I think I should send you one of the pictures I have of when I was using. Sure. Um, so then I, that's how we started the foundation, right? So I, I registered this foundation and I start going to schools to tell people, don't do drugs and don't do this and don't do that. It's not good for you. Uh, I took courses with WHO, with the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, with um, Nigerian police, Angelia, etc. Now, part of what we do is go back to the bunks. Yeah? So I go back to the bunks. What is that like for you going back there now and seeing people in positions that you were in for such a long time. Very nostalgic. Bittersweet. Very painful because because I'm the last person that will judge any of them. I know their struggles. I know their pains. I know that contrary to what people see them as, a bunch of useless people who are wasting their lives, that's not what it is. These are people who are the genuine struggle. But let me tell you something. On in, I got married uh, barely 18 months after I got clean, I got married. So I told my wife everything. And I was like, this is what I want to do with part of my life to make sure I help others. And she was totally in for it. So on our first visit to the bunk together, we, after we've shared the food, sanitary towels, uh, toiletries and things like that, we're leaving. And then one lady calls out to me, sir, please, sir, please, sir, please. And I look back and I can't recognize her. Now, let me give you a story. In 2015, I go to Ibro Hotel in Abuja, in Zone 5, to see my dealer. And then I called him. He says he's in room, so, 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 so come up. I get to the room, and the door is slightly ajar. So I push it. And then when I look in, I see young girls, about five of them, in their school uniform. I know the school, a very popular school in Abuja. So some of them had their buttons open, you know, so immediately I walked back out because I might be using drugs, but I don't do underage girls. Yeah. So I call him again and I'm like, I think you gave me the wrong room. So he's talking to me and I can hear him coming out of the room. 
And I'm like, what are you doing? What on heaven's earth are you doing with underage girls in your room? Some of them were in low cut, you know, the way secondary school, yeah. junior secondary school girls cut their hair. Just looking at them, you could tell they were 13 or 14. Oh my God. So he's like, ah, she forget about that, that these are his street soldiers. So now he has a nephew in their school. So he uses his nephew to get them hooked on drugs. His <gasps> nephew is 14. So when these girls are hooked on drugs, the only place they can get it is from him. They don't know where drugs are sold. So when they go to school, they find their way of coming back out. Or when their parents drop them, or somehow they shall come back out. And then when they come to him, he sends them out to sell drugs to people. Is the school, to, to the best of your knowledge, the school that you were talking about here, is this school aware of what is going Eventually, on? Eventually, I told them. I had, to yeah. go, I had to go back there and I told them. How did they approach the situation? Uh, they, they, we did a program for them, a whole to um, drug-proof your school. Great. Yeah, so that's a program I developed. Great. So we did it for them and then um, the results have been great. Underage girls are often used by drug dealers to distribute narcotics as it's believed they're less likely to be suspected. Recently, the NDLEA, Nigeria's Drug Enforcement Agency, declared an Instagram celebrity couple and a prophetess wanted for allegedly spearheading a drug cartel and recruiting teenage girls into trafficking. According to the spokesperson of the NDLEA, a 15-year-old girl was arrested and led the operatives to accommodation in Lagos that had apparently been rented for herself and three other young girls that were being used to market and distribute the drugs. A sad and frightening reality. Now, what he does is he'll send these young girls out to make deliveries of drugs. So imagine you're a policewoman on the road. You see a small girl with her backpack. Are you going to search her? Nope. <laughs> so that was his sick, demented... Way of thinking. Way of thinking. So My that's goodness. what he was doing with them. So... At that time, I was struggling with addiction. There's no way I could help them. I mean, I had my own struggles. So I remember what I told him. I said, hell has a special place for you. It's unfortunate that you're doing this. And right now, I'm not in the best place to help these people because my mind is not saying myself. So I leave. And that was the last I heard of it because I actually stopped patronizing him because of what I saw him doing. Now, this girl that called me was one of the girls that was in that room. Oh, no. So the moment I looked back at her and I was trying to recall her face, she said, sir, don't you remember me? I said, no, I don't. She said, I was in the room all those years ago. So I said, oh yeah, that's true. What happened to you? She had lost so much weight. And then she starts telling me how that guy got arrested. Yeah? And now when they needed drugs, they wouldn't know where to get from. But they remember that this guy had sent them to the bunk before to pick up drugs. So they came back to the bunk as young schoolgirls. And you know when he sends them, he probably doesn't give them money. Maybe he transfers to those ones and he'll just tell the girls to pick up. So they just thought, just go there, maybe something of 100 And then they went there and they saw the cold reality of the drug world where nobody's going to give you anything for free. And then those persons obviously were ready to... That was, that was, that was easy prey for them. I mean, those girls were... They needed a fix. They had no money. The only thing they could do was sleep around in the bunk. So two of them out of the five started frequenting the bunk. And then she got pregnant. So when she got pregnant, she uh, went back to tell her dad. She's from a Muslim home. And then dad says, you've embarrassed us and blah, blah, blah. So you're disowned. Mm. 
So the only place she knew how to, where to go back to was the bunk. So she went back to the bunk and then she was able to get an abortion. But then eventually she got HIV. And uh, she started living in the bunk as a uh, bunk worker where she sweeps and then they pay her peanuts and things like that and then still used as a sex slave at that age. No. So now I had told my wife this story about the girls in that hotel room so she could relate when this lady was. So she was like, babe, we need to take this girl home. So I said, okay, uh, we'll take her home. So I had to tell the bunk because I still have to maintain a cordial relationship with the dealers. Yeah. Yeah, I have to because I still go there. So I talked to them and they were like, yeah, take her. We don't need her. Nobody even needs her anymore. She's causing a nuisance here. She doesn't take her medication and all. So we take her home, get, get her some clothes. Then we start talking to relevant stakeholders, NACA, uh, NAPTIP. We yes. tried to reach out to NAPTIP and some other NGOs. So we got out to see a specialist. We moved her to JOS. Because the whole environmental issue was going to be a problem. Then we reached out to her family and said, look, this girl didn't fail you. You guys failed her. Yeah. And it's time to do right by her now. So we had to put them through what we call psychoeducation and try to make them understand that, look, she made a mistake. But in the first place, how did you guys not even notice? Yeah. You know, and things like and that. And so, why abandon your and child? why abandon your situation? child? Yeah. So uh, they came along and then, uh, well, she's in Cardiff now. Wow. Yes, she's doing very, very well. She's in Cardiff and um, of course she still has to be taking her medications and still live with the regrets of the past. But yeah. I think she's having a much better life than uh, she would have if we left her there that day. So this is some of the extreme cases of... That must have been... It must be helpful for you as well having a partner that's so supportive oh, yes. in what you do. Oh, yes. I travel... In the last two weeks, I've been to almost 10 states in the country. Yes, I barely see my wife. And I'm very close to my first daughter. So, uh, But then my wife understands that that's what I want to do with my, with my time. And uh, yeah, she's very supportive. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, I want to go back, because now I have so many questions, right? <laughs> and I want to go back to the very beginning where you said that you had, before crack cocaine, you had experimented with so many different drugs. Um one that you mentioned is psychedelic mushrooms. And we're living in a world now where psychedelic mushrooms are becoming mm -hmm. legal mm -hmm. in certain states and certain countries. Mm -hmm. I know um, Oregon in the United States is one of the first states to have legalized psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand with things like that? Uh, for us in our country and our society, I don't think we're ready for it. Yesterday, yesterday, day before yesterday, I had a, a radio show with um, Soare, yeah, who is a big advocate for the legalization of marijuana in Nigeria. Yeah. So, of course, there was a lot of back and forth. And I tried to explain to him that, look, I don't have a problem with medicinal, the medicinal use of marijuana, because I actually know that from research, it can actually be used to help. But then, are we ready in the country now? Do we have the requisite policing? First of all, is the government going to bear the... Is the government assuring us that if they start cultivating marijuana, for instance, in Nigeria, legalize it, are they going to extract the medicinal aspect of it? Or they're just going to cultivate it and it's free for all and then however you choose to use it to cure yourself, you can. Because the primary component of marijuana is tetrahydrocarbinol, THC. Yeah. And that's actually what gets people high. So if you are going to cultivate marijuana, for instance, 
are you going to put that aside, remove the medicine part, and actually make it use it? Do we have the the, the do we have enough policing power to make sure that it's not misused? When it's legalized, are they going to use a percentage of the uh, profits for addiction prevention, addiction treatment, continuum of care, things like this? All of these things haven't been haven't been brought to the table. So I don't think we are ready for legalization of anything, even the psychedelics. I, I agree with you. I don't think Nigeria is ready. But looking globally now, the argument that you usually hear is that marijuana, for example, has mm. never been known to directly actually kill someone, whereas mm. alcohol mm. <laughs> that's legal everywhere has killed so many people. Um, and it seems as though a lot of societies are experiencing a shift in mm. what is okay and what is not okay. Um, and I do ask that question. Why is it okay for alcohol to be legal when you're over 18? And so many people have died from alcohol and alcohol addictions, but marijuana is not. What, what's your response? Um, the alcohol is it's a billion-dollar industry. You know. Uh, you're right when you say people are known to have died from uh, alcohol misuse. And then you can't, there's no known case of someone who died of, because you can actually not die of, from smoking. You smoke to a point where you get tired and drop the, yes. Yeah. So, but then when it comes to marijuana. Uh, is it that it's a gateway? Marijuana itself? Mm. It is sort of a gateway. It is sort of a gateway. But then what I'm trying to still say here is um, we still have the, it's still classified as a drug for now. You know, so up until this point, people or our leaders or whatever it is still has that um, notion or belief that it cannot be placed on the same side as alcohol. And uh, it might not cause death, but then we're known that it's known to cause severe mental issues like schizophrenia. I'm sure you know that. Yeah. Many researchers in the past have actually, and I think there was a documentary by CNN in 2021 to that effect. So, um, yes, it might not cause death, but it could also cause a lot of danger among people. It causes sterility in men too. Fair enough. Prolonged use of marijuana. Fair enough. And then another question I have, the bunks. Yeah. You mentioned the bunk in Abuja. You also mm. spoke of a bunk in Ibadan. I'm mm. guessing that there are loads of bunks like this around the in country. Lagos, yeah. You've been working alongside now, because of your foundation, you've been working alongside security agencies like mm -hmm. the NDLEA. Are these agencies aware of these bunks and what's going on in these bunks? Uh, yes, they are. And um, the primary stakeholder for drug demand reduction and drug supply reduction in Nigeria is the NDLEA. And the chairman, retired Brigadier General Buba Marwa, is doing an excellent job, you know, given the resources he has. He's doing a great job. We've seen a lot of seizures. We've seen a lot of constipations. We've seen a lot of uh, uh, prosecutions and jail time. And I think his um, method is paying dividends because he he is of the opinion that if you cut the supply, then it's not going to get down to the users. You know, so that's what he's doing. Now, the thing with these bunks is if you close one up, and now this is not me making a case for... Another one opens. Yes, another one opens. Yeah. If you close one up, I've seen it many, many times. You close one here today, you know where Ipodo is in, in yes. Lagos? Yes, yes. There's so many bunks there in that area. 
So you close one today, you go and read, you close it today, somebody springs up and opens somewhere else. Now, what the general is doing is he believes if you can cut the supply to those pocket dealers, they will not be able to open these smaller ones. So instead of concentrating so much energy on closing these small, small bunks in different places, why don't you just cut off the supply permanently from getting the drugs to them to be able to open those bunks? So yes, they are aware. And you know, that leads me on to my next question, which has to do with how we handle addictions and drug abuse in Nigeria. You mentioned your experience at rehab and it not necessarily being tailored to what you were going through. And it's not the first time I'm hearing that. Do you think we do you think we go about handling drug addictions as a society in the right way? Because to me, it looks like there is so much room for improvement. And it's probably also one of the reasons why drug abuse is so prevalent, because we're not handling it in the right way. I don't think we're handling it in the right way. First of all, there's so much stigma associated with uh, drug use, which is why people who suffer or struggle with drug use wouldn't want to come out or speak out because they feel the society is going to look at them as some sort of people. You know, just before the whole Me Too movement, we had a lot of ladies who are survivors of heinous attacks by criminals. But they couldn't come out for nothing they did. They were on their own and somebody attacked them. And yet they couldn't come out. But then because a lot of information, a lot of... Uh, awareness started coming out. Instead of having ladies being able to say, okay, me too, this happened to me. So that's part of what we need to embrace in our society as regards drug abuse and addiction. People should understand, for instance, addiction is a disease. It's a brain disease, chronic relapsing brain disease that makes you want to do things that you don't would necessarily want to do. So if you find yourself in that position, like when I do trainings for parents or religious leaders, I tell them, if you're Child has typhoid, for instance. You take him or her to hospital. Why is it different when he's struggling with addiction? That's a disease. Get him the requisite professional care to help him. You know, it's not a death sentence. It's not a moral failing. It's not. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. So um, that's one way. Then two, we need to embrace um, harm reduction. What does harm reduction mean? I'll give you a very primary simple example uh someone who is riding a bike and always has to use that bike to get to work that's the only means of transport he has but he doesn't have money to buy a helmet with or without his helmet he'll go to work with his bike but then if you can afford to buy a helmet for him and give to him he'll wear it yeah and he'll still go to work and now you have reduced the harm that might come out from an accident we need to also introduce that into drug use an addiction. How does this work? Now, certain people inject themselves in the bunk, right? Most of them share needles, right? I was also going to ask about that. Most of them share needles. There's nothing wrong in buying needles and taking to the bunk for distribution. And this, the, the government should be doing this, not even NGOs or individuals. The government should embrace this. Because if, for instance, you give somebody struggling with addiction a good needle, a new needle, and she doesn't have to share with somebody that has Less likely to catch a disease. Thank you. Less likely to catch a disease. You know, condoms. Because these ladies will have to sleep with people to be able to get money. And they will not buy condoms with their money because they need to buy cigarettes. They need to buy alcohol. They need to buy drugs. We have a lot of uh, NGOs that distribute these things, but the government should also buy into it. Yes, you're not... People trying to say you're encouraging them. No, you're not encouraging them. Whether you give them 
or you don't give them, they're still going to do it. They're still going to do it. So why don't you help them? You're actually helping them. And then uh, I think if we embrace this, try to reduce the stigma and embrace harm reduction, then it will give us a new way to look at it. And then we should stop using unorthodox means to treat people with addiction. Don't put people in a place and start flogging them. Yeah. Yes, we had to close up a place in Kaduna State. I saw a place they chained them by their legs. They chained them by their legs. It's wrong. This is all against the human rights of the person. Yeah. You don't chain people because they're struggling with addiction. This is a guy that was in my place for a while. Now, his parents told me he had a struggle with drugs. But then when he came, he was with me for about six months. I could tell he wasn't struggling with drugs. He had a mental illness. So I'm not a psychiatrist. I got a psychiatric doctor to examine him and she said, okay, she's diagnosing him with BPD. And I speak to his family and I say, this is what the consultant says. And they're like, ah, we don't tie our jaw, we don't tie, we'll carry and go to our village, we'll chain them for a tree. How do you chain a person to a tree? You don't do that. That's wrong. So, and you can kill people from their withdrawal symptoms if you don't yes, handle it in the right way too, which right is another thing we don't understand. And don't I wanted to ask it. about that because I know in Canada, for example, you have injection sites where mm. people with addictions can go, they monitor you, mm-hmm. like you were speaking about before, to make sure they're weaning you off mm. this particular mm. drug. Mm. Do you think we need to start looking at having injection sites in Nigeria because we do have a serious drug problem in this country? Yes, we can. Uh, I have a friend in Canada. She brought this up uh, a few months ago. And then I was actually studying the paper. She said, yes, we can. But um, a lot of things have to be put in place yeah. before that can work in our society. A lot of things. Even um, the use of, uh, what's the substitute drug for heroin called? Sorry? Methadone. methadone. Good. Thank you. Now, methadone treatment. We also should embrace methadone treatment in Nigeria. But even before you do that, there has to be certain things in place to make sure that it's also not abused. I'll give you a story. A lady was a very big, successful banker. She works with one of the new generation banks. And then she started using heroin. So they bring her to my boss because I interned under somebody. So he worked with the UNODC. So they bring her to him and they're like, this lady is struggling with heroin addiction. We're going to sack her. No, they can't sack her because she has one of the biggest accounts in the bank. She'll simply take it somewhere else and another bank will employ her. So they want to keep her in the bank, but at the same time, they don't want her struggles with addiction to be, bring a bad PR image for the bank. So my boss says, okay, well, he had he had a, the screening and assessment and found out that she's struggling with heroin. And he says, okay, we're going to use methadone treatment for her um, because she still had to be going to work. So she was coming to the office in the morning to take her dose of methadone and go back to work. And then she did this for three months, got better, transferred her, changed her location, and she's doing very well now. You know, so that's something go. also we can we can, we can can work towards. A success story. It mm. doesn't always have to be so hardcore. Mm. Um, and I'm glad you actually mentioned that because there's there are ways to treat people without going to extremes mm-hmm. that are not going to be of benefit to that person. Yeah. As we round up this conversation, David, how can people who want to support your foundation support you? Uh, okay, um, we our website, www.davidfolarami.com. Uh, we take donations for people who are struggling with addiction. And then um, some of our, our drug abuse prevention programs, like throughout last week, we had programs every day, you know, reaching over 5,000 people. And then we have materials we give to these people. And then we have to have follow-up sessions. You just don't go to a place and talk to people and go. You're going to have people who say, oh, uncle, my friend gave me weed to smoke. I feel X, Y, Z way. How can you help? So we have 
volunteer counselors and things like that. So uh, we run the foundation through donations from well-meaning Nigerians. And then if you want to donate, you just go to our website or our social media pages and then you'll find a way to donate there. There's been about a 26% increase in drug abuse worldwide over the past decade. The UNODC's World Drug Report 2022 estimates that 11.2 million people worldwide were injecting drugs and around half of this number were living with hepatitis C, 1.4 million people living with HIV and 1.2 million living with both. Cocaine manufacturing was at a record high in 2020 and cocaine seizures also increased despite the COVID-19 pandemic. Addiction is an epidemic and not everyone makes it through alive. David managed to turn his life around and through the David Falarami Foundation, he has now dedicated his life to helping others to overcome drug addictions. If you're in need of help or you have a loved one who is, you can contact David's foundation through the information that he's provided. We'll also be sharing this information across social media. Thank you, David, for sharing your story. And listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Lay of the Land.